Welcome to this episode of the Institute for Person-Centered Care podcast, where the principles of person-centered care come alive. In today's edition, local experts from the Quad Cities will share the theory of weathering and person-centered practices to improve those health outcomes. This episode's podcast host is Ann Garten. Ann is the director of the SAU Institute for Person-Centered Care and nursing faculty. Before we get started, we want to remind everyone to please review current COVID reports from reliable sources such as the CDC, World Health Organization, and your public health department. If you live in the Quad Cities area, you can also visit TogetherQC.com for reliable local resources addressing social determinants. This podcast was recorded through the phone to support the current recommendations. Welcome to the IPCC podcast, brought to you by the Institute for Person-Centered Care in collaboration with KALA-FM. My name is Ann Garten and will be your host for today's podcast. Today our podcast is to discuss a concept in public health called weathering. Our guests include LaShawn Moore and Ryan Sadler. Welcome to you both. LaShawn, I wonder if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit about yourself. Yes. Hi. Good afternoon. My name is LaShawn Moore, and I am a master's in nursing student specializing in public health at Walden University, and I am completing my practicum project at IPCC, and so I'm very grateful for that. And my practicum project um, certainly involves health disparities and other factors that can impact African-Americans' health, and so um, I will be sharing that information uh, today. And also, I work for the Scott County Health Department as a clinical services specialist, and I've been there for 16 years, so I am excited to be here today. Thanks. We're excited to have you. Ryan, you're one of our leaders here at St. Ambrose. Wondered if you would share a little bit about yourself. Hi, I'm uh, glad to be here as well. I am in my 25th year working at St. Ambrose and in year two in this role as the Associate Vice President for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, um, and involved in a lot of things both on campus and in the uh, Davenport Quad Cities community. Excellent. Thanks for joining us. So I wonder a little bit if you could share with me about eliminating health disparities as a public health challenge in the United States. And I think before we even start, LaShawn, will you share a little bit what health disparities are? Yes. So health disparities are the differences in health such as disability, illness, and mortality between groups that are closely associated with social, economic, and or environmental disadvantages. And with health disparities, you know, they can happen across different groups, but racial and ethnic minorities, particularly African Americans, are significantly affected. As I was looking at some research here, I had stumbled across the American Public Health Association, and um, what they shared was in the United States that health inequities often result in disparities in health outcomes between populations. And when we look closer at health inequities, it is the uneven distribution of social and economic resources that are often, um, that often affect a person's health. And so these inequities often stem from structural and 
or systematic racism, a history of disenfranchisement, and discrimination of specific populations, including African Americans. I wonder if, if you have maybe, or either one of you, have an example of, of how that is seen in, in real life. For me, I think looking at our student population and looking at some of our students who may not have adequate health care, um, and, and really kind of the, those those issues that come up, whether it's mental health um, and their physical health, that uh, being their authentic selves to show up in the classroom becomes really a challenge, um, and, and really it, it it's about who they are as an individual. Um, and that they can't be their authentic selves. And, and so it makes me think of things like the ACEs study, Adverse Childhood Experience study, where um, we can't treat every um, student, whether K-12 or higher ed, um, the same because we just don't know um, the, the, the issues or the, the, the disparities and the challenges that they may have woken up to that particular morning. And so, again, we're seeing a lot of students here at the college level with increased mental health, and that goes beyond um, COVID is just on top of what we were already seeing based on race. Yeah, I would agree. And as for our listeners who aren't aware, I'm also a nurse, and I have seen that when I care for patients as well, that they can't always feel comfortable being themselves. Um, And so having that person-centered and that piece of relationship is really important to understand their underlying needs and their experiences of why they are coming to us in in that time of health or education and what have you and what, what what their needs are to get their better health and wellness outcomes, right? Yes. So, LaShawn, your project is on weathering, and it has been implicated as a significant cause of racial health disparities. Can you give us uh, examples or and explain what weathering is and how it impacts that African-American health? Yes, so the term weathering was a hypothesis that was first proposed by Dr. Arlene Geronimus in 1992 when she observed disparities in birth outcomes in black women. And what she found is that black teen mothers experienced a lower risk for poor birth outcomes than black women that were in their mid-20s, which was the reverse for white teenage mothers who had the greater risk for poor birth outcomes than white mothers in their mid to late 20s. And so through her research, she discovered how cumulative and chronic exposure to social, economic, and environmental factors played a significant role in the health of African Americans. So over the years, the weathering hypothesis became an explanatory framework for racial health disparities. So when we look a little bit closer to African Americans, Weathering describes how African-Americans experience physiological wear and tear or deterioration in health that happens in response to chronic and repeated exposure to social and economic adversities, or we can call them stressors, such as discrimination, institutional and systemic racism, and socioeconomic disadvantages. And these chronic and repeated exposures to stressors results in health vulnerabilities that can lead to accelerated biological aging, early onset of chronic diseases, and premature death. Wow, that's a lot. 
a lot of impact that experiences uh, have on our health, uh, and, and especially when it's constant, right? I, I think of weathering like uh, the cliffs. Um, uh, and that constant push of the sea and the waves and the wind on that and how it consistently takes away parts of the earth. And and, uh, that's how I have visualized this when I did a lot of the reading myself before this podcast. Ryan, I wonder if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit about Um, As a black professional, how has it been your experience working in a predominantly white environment and what challenges that you have experienced um, that that you could see impacting um, health and wellness uh, and as well as the need? And I'm going to add a little bit here on that resiliency piece. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I find this weathering concept very uh, intriguing. It's similar to a concept that I've studied um, by... Um, Dr. Joy DeGruy, the post-traumatic uh, slave syndrome, um, which is it really gets at multi-generational trauma and justice experiences by African Americans and things like this summer's events with uh, the death of George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, and Breonna Taylor, and so many more have been triggering um, traumatic experiences for for many of us, um, especially as African Americans. Um, my experiences have been, I'll say, minor compared to some of my colleagues or those um, working in, in other industries. Um, I say this because I learned a long time ago that um, to not let people or things kind of control my, my personal well-being as best as I can. I am currently reading a, a book that I just picked up uh, last week. It's called, entitled Working While Black, The Black Person's Guide to Success in the White Workplace by Michelle Johnson. And in, in, in chapter one of that book and throughout the book, she describes what she calls the 15% difference. This concept essentially says that while 85% of our experiences are similar to our white counterparts or anyone else, um, that we may have challenges at work or whatnot. But some days that 15% difference, that remaining 50% difference, is the highlighted difference uh, that we feel and impacts us the most. And I think that's where this weathering concept comes into play when we are reminded in the workplace that we are black or that this concept of being less than um, when everything um, in our educational upbringing has been trying to tell us that we are as valued, are as important, yet we may get a microaggression, unintended or intended offensive statement that might be said in our presence that negatively affects our relationship um, at the end of the day with that person, um, maybe for weeks to come, maybe even years to come. And so that's that to me. And I, and I, I like to share this quote by James Baldwin, if I could now. And he says, to be black and conscious in America is to be in a constant state of rage. And I think some of this is understanding our history there is this natural sense of rage that you know we've been lied to, and so this weathering piece is trying to, in my mind, is trying to balance with what we've been told—the resistance to truth—and um, then how do we then function in our work worlds and be our authentic selves? Yeah, I think that's that's key in our relationships in the workplace. Is how do you and I we work together, right? Yeah. Build that relationship that we can be authentic with each other and and build each other up, right? Um, and also, I think important to 
put in the uh, processes and policies and what have you, as well as remove those that that are systemic issues that create the microaggressions and and other things. I think the other piece is to become more aware. Um, you know, you said something, and I thought, oh, I said something earlier that might have been considered a microaggression. Shoot, right? So recognizing in myself that I don't always know what is and what isn't, and that I have to continually learn, right? Yes, yes. So how, um, in in that workplace, how, how do you see, and I think we can go back and forth amongst the three of us a little bit here, is how do we become more inclusive and socially just for the employee? Well, I, I think, uh, you, you just hit it, um, if we avoid the diversity training pieces and the opportunities to really understand what a microaggression is and, and when they happen, these intended or unintended or biases, when they're at play and they show up explicitly, if we refuse or can't have those opportunities to to really come to grips with that, it, it, then then we're going to struggle. And so to create an inclusive and socially just workplace environment where employees can be their authentic selves and feeling valued and appreciated, I think, is where we all would like to to be in, yes, we have to address those policies and practices that may be anti-racist, anti-sexist, um, that may be hateful at nature. Um, another quote, Theodore Roosevelt is credited for saying that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Um, and isn't that so so true in terms of us coming to work? We may not like some of the work that we do at times, but if I know that I'm valued at work, uh, either by the clients or those who I work with and by those who I uh, you know, work for, then I'm likely going to show up in a better place. Indeed. Indeed. Thank you. So, LaShawn, I wonder if you would pull in here some potential interventions that you see across the health and human service sectors that would decrease weathering in their impacts. Yes. So, you know, one crucial factor that influences health is the way that healthcare and services are delivered. And research supports that lower person-centered care is associated with higher levels of perceived discrimination and higher levels of dissatisfaction with care. So perceived discrimination can negatively affect service utilization, provider relationship, trust, decision-making, and communication. So uh, it is so important that those that are working in the health and human services sector can improve health outcomes by adopting a person-centered care philosophy and practice to improve these health outcomes. So um, certainly by placing that individual in the center of their care or services, making those collaborative decisions about their care, uh, respecting that person's values, preferences, and needs. And, and when those things are incorporated, um, then that, uh, that practitioner or that organization will begin to adopt that mindset of, we need to be asking the question, what matters to you, instead of focusing on what is the matter with you. And so those are some things that certainly can be potential interventions that can certainly be incorporated within the health and human services sector. So, um, and then also, I, as Brian had mentioned, definitely, you know, organ organizations need to create a culture of equity by building internal capacity to advance health equity. And that could certainly be done through hiring practices, um, include equity goals within an organization's mission, 
providing cultural competence training and also looking at implicit bias because that's really important because we know those things, they, they impact a person's health and services that they receive. Indeed, and I think as a provider myself, understanding that that changes as I grow. So to consistently reassess that in my practice, my implicit biases when I graduated from school is much different than what it is now, right? And, yeah. and, and hopefully I've grown, but there's still, we all have implicit biases. There's nobody in the, in the world that doesn't. I just, I can't imagine that there is. They're perfect if they do, right? So, <laughs> so in that, how do I consistently question myself as a provider or as an educator and continually learn uh, so that I can have the right impacts in, in my relationships as well as have better relationships and outcomes as, as a whole for all of those that, that I work with. I think that's really important. So it's not always, it's not always the, proce- the policy that helps, but it's also the reflection of ourselves mm-hmm. and our practices. Yes, I agree with that. And I mean, certainly there has to be a willingness to, 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 to self-reflect, um, to be able to see those things and to understand that, you know, we are working with a diverse um, culture and uh, we see things differently than other people's do. So making sure that we have that open mindset and that ability to learn, like, what are those things that might be a barrier to me providing the services or the person-centered care that I need to provide to the individuals that are coming into my office? So that's, that's so, so valuable. Great points, and I think the idea is if we stick to the circles in which we live in, if our circle is not diverse, then those biases that we have will continue to be reinforced as as to be true. And so perception is reality, but, but perception can also be misleading. And so I, I think that's the importance of the diversity, equity, and inclusion type of training that we need to do. We need to put ourselves... Um, in circles where we are uncomfortable enough to have these conversations about our differences, about our biases, uh, so that in the work world, um, we we have this sense of understanding that, I guess I don't know everything. Um, And that that's that's a tough place for a lot of people to, to to rest in, especially when we talk about policies and changing policies, and we talk about anti-racist um, training and the terminology that we use sometimes. If I have to look at myself in the mirror, I don't like to do that. Um, but it's a system. It's it's more broader than the individual. Um, but we as individuals can change that for the betterment of our society. Indeed. I have one more question, and that's really, and we touched on it a little bit, but I want to pull in a a bit, too, on resilience and creating that resilience, um, because I think that's also an an important piece. Uh, And so, LaShawn, I wonder if you want to speak a little bit to it, and then we'll ask Ryan his thoughts. So if you are um, talking about resilience on a person-centered level with the client's are the patients that we might see coming into our facilities. You know, certainly, you know, there are some protective factors that can help build resilience for those individuals. You know, one protective factor is having a healthy racial identity um, certainly does help. You know, studies support, supported that African-Americans who have a healthy and positive self-identity 
um, the belief that race is vital to one's self-concept, we're better able to cope and mitigate with the harmful effects of the racially discriminated treatment that they may have experienced. Um, certainly, there's some things uh, that they can also do on a personal level um, that are culturally tailored interventions for coping with the stress that they may experience on a daily um, basis. And that is some of those things can be mindfulness, um, self-care, exercise. What's also important, too, is faith and prayer. So faith and prayer is one of those interventions that certainly um, I do receive feedback from African-Americans that have helped them through a stressful event that they may have experienced. And then on an interpersonal level, definitely relationships uh, and networking um, is also very vital to helping with resilience, to, for building resilience. And so um, we're looking at the family and the friends that can be supportive to us. We're looking at um, people within our culture communities and our neighborhoods that can serve as a protective influence from health harming behaviors and also may promote health equity through support systems that can that mitigate the social disadvantages that might be experienced. Yeah, very, very, very good. And I love the the, the positive self-identity and, and racial identity concept. It makes me think um, historically how how society has misconstrued the concept of of when when the term black power came out or black pride or even now more relative black lives matter it will none of those terms were intended to mean that uh, black pride is is greater than white pride or hispanic pride or black power or black lives matter that that other lives don't matter but that was all medicinal for us because we have been beat down so long to think that we were less than and so I really identify with with that sense. Um, another another piece in this book that just kind of makes me makes me think uh, that I'm reading by uh, Dr. Uh, by Michelle Johnson is she she describes as as there's three different types of black people in the workplace, and she said there's the survivors, there's strivers, and then there's thrivers. So survivors, striver, and a thriver, um, and. A thriver is a go-getter, I'll just explain that because of time, who understands that policies can be rewritten to be more equitable and just. That person kind of has, um, not necessarily disregard, but they're bold to, be, to present themselves in the workplace and to speak their mind when their voice may be, may be silenced. Um, but they are a threat also to, to change, right, and to those who, who want status quo. Not everybody can be a thriver. Um, but but I think having that self identity, that positive self identity, is 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 very important um, when we talk in the realm of resiliency and and what we need, what we can bring to the table. Um, and, and and for me, and it's it's creating uh, either work affinity groups or circles where we can have conversations and be our authentic selves, and we can talk about the issues we may, we may be having in the workforce, or our students can get in clubs and groups, organizations that they can talk about their issues um, on a, in a direct way. That is medicinal. Great conversation. I want to thank you both for joining us today. 
disparities are realities that impact our community members. And until we address the more structurally rooted factors that impact our neighbors, our colleagues, family, and friends, disparities will continue to affect our community's overall health and wellness. And we all want to live in a, in a healthy community. So to be truly person-centered, it is our goal to create those communities that are best place to live for all. Thank you both for joining us. It's been a great conversation. Thank you. Thank you. For listening to this episode of the Institute for Person-Centered Care podcast, brought to you by St. Ambrose University's Institute for Person-Centered Care and KALA-FM. We look forward to next time when we discuss caring for those with eating disorders through person-centered practices. You can learn more about the Institute by connecting with us on Facebook and Twitter.